The Water Values Podcast, Session 120. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We have Judd Hill of Ecological Service Partners. You may remember him uh, back from episode 45 when we talked about investing in the water space. Well, he is back to talk about another form of uh, investment that he's involved with and it's wetlands mitigation banking. Uh, and that's what uh, the specialty of Ecological Service Partners is, and they do it on a big scale. And he has some uh, f- uh, terrific insights and greater, uh, uh, you know, how, how wetlands impacts the economy and things like that. So it's really going to be a fascinating listen, I think, uh, uh, for you, even if you're not kind of in the wetlands space. Uh, so uh, before we get to that, a little bit of housekeeping. You know, as always, uh, thank you so much for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Uh, we have a great new review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's it's uh, by Roaming Swan. Uh, it's a five-star rating. And for the review, uh, Roaming Swan says, uh, great for folks in any part of the water sector. He says, Dave does a great job of finding and interviewing people with experience in all sorts of different areas of the water sector. Paren, it's huge, and paren and letting them tell their story to educate us all about water. If you work in the water industry, this is a great resource to advance your knowledge of your own subfield and also round out your knowledge of everything else going on in water, whether you work with utilities and or natural systems in the capacity of an operator, engineer, lawyer, journalist, economist, or just someone interested in water. Listening to the Water Values Podcast will give you a broader and deeper understanding of water. Roaming Swan, thank you so much for that terrific review. I really appreciate the five-star rating. And uh, thank you so much. And if anyone else is out there has been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever uh, uh, whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. Uh, also, if you'd like to help support the podcast, you can do so by leaving a, uh, a, denom- a donation in, in any denomination you see fit. You go to the website, which is thewatervalues.com. There's a little PayPal button down there on the lower right. Uh, if you scroll down a little bit, uh, just click on that and make a donation. It's that easy, and it is very much appreciated. It helps defray the cost of putting the podcast on. Uh, well, let's get to the uh, let's get to the podcast. Let's get to the, the to the main event with Judd Hill and Wetlands Mitigation Banking. So, open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Judd, welcome back to the Water Values Podcast. It's been a while since we had you on back. Uh, Back in episode forty-five, so uh, Judd, tell us a little about what you're what you're doing these days. Well, um, after I left um, NGP, which is now part of Carlisle, was managing um, their their water investment activities. My old partner and I from NGP, a gentleman named Murray Starkle, formed a new fund called Ecological Service Partners, and our mission was basically to assemble some equity capital to invest in what's referred to as wetlands and stream mitigation banking. So the question becomes, what is that? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting space. Um, before I begin, let me give a quick perspective on my partner, um, which is humane to what we do. Murray Starkle was formerly a colonel in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. 
and managed a large portion of this um, activity um, called um, Water Mitigation Banking, and the Corps of Engineers is the overseeing regulatory agency. And it, the whole um, regulatory framework is structured under uh, the Clean Water Act, Section 404, and then further um, clarified under uh, federal rules issued in 2008. And in essence, what um, Section 404 says that it deals in impacting parties, and that can be someone building a pipeline, an LNG facility, a refinery, a road, a housing development. If you impact a wetland, um, you are required by law to um, mitigate the impact before you get a permit to construct your facility. So the rule basically says the first thing you should do is avoid impacting that wetland if you can. If you can't avoid it, you should at least minimize that impact as best one can. And if you can't avoid or minimize, then you're required to, quote unquote, mitigate that impact. So if you're building a $20 billion LNG um, facility and you're going to impact, say, 100 acres of wetland from the site that you're going to build your LNG facility, before you begin construction, you're required to go to the Corps of Engineers and get a permit to deal with that impact that, that you're about to cause. And the way the rules are structured is you used to be able to, in some cases, just write a check, and in receipt, as they called it, and the Corps would collect those funds, and in theory, they would collect a, um, a number of those funds, and then they would develop a wetland to offset the impact from that permitting party. That didn't work very well because the money would go into a coffer. The folks in D.C. would look down and see those dollars and say, hey, what are you doing with that money down there in uh, Louisiana? Uh, well, we're collecting it to build a wetland. Uh, I don't think so. Send it up to D.C. and we'll take care of it for you. So that money just never got appropriately invested. Um, so that was not a functional use. Um, the other thing the permittee could do um, is uh, try to self-mitigate. This is pre-2008. And in many cases, folks that are building refineries or pipelines don't have a clue how to build and reconstruct a wetland. It's a very complex um, set of issues with geotech and the flora and the fauna, getting the um, estuaries correct. It's just it's a very complicated science. And so many of those banks just fail. Um, so then in 2008, it was, look, there are professional folks that actually restore these wetlands, and when those wetlands are restored, the Corps of Engineers has a permitting process that allows that private party that's restoring a wetland to actually get a credit for the wetlands they restore. So what you're able to do is go into a, a watershed, and this is a very important part of this program. You have to um, offset the impact in the same watershed that you're going to restore the wetland. So if you're in Galveston, Texas, and you're going to take out 100 acres of wetland, you must have a credit that was created in that same watershed. So you can't take a credit out of the Chesapeake Bay and put it down in Galveston um, um, Harbor. So it's, it's very region-specific and watershed-specific. Okay. So what, what we would do as a, as a private um, mitigation banking developer is that we would try to find land that was heavily impacted by storm or poor land use management, you know, the, the 
um, the cattle had not been all the screened, and you know, it was poor husbandry done, poor ag practices, and these are just dysfunctional wetlands, if you will. And we would go into the landowner and say, we'd like to restore that wetland to its original pristine condition of where it was 100 years ago. Typically, that landowner is a, usually a willing seller because we'll pay fair market value for that land. And then we would develop a plan and take that to the Corps of Engineers. And let's say we're going to buy a 1,000 acres of impacted wetland. And the way we would restore the wetland, in many cases, is to actually take dredge from a navigable waterway and beneficially reuse that dredge, pump it to our site, and actually raise up the bottom of that wetland, in some, some cases two, three, four feet. We have to calculate the settling rate once we place that dredge material there, so now we can bring the bottom of that wetland close to the surface so the light can penetrate to the bottom of that um, new restored uh, land and so light can penetrate it, and we then can replant the uh, endemic flora and, and fauna um, for that particular area. And there are different kinds of wetlands. There's probably 30 different varieties from um, recreating a marsh or a brackish wetland or a freshwater marsh or low-level hardwoods. And so you have to, if you can, match the impact you have on your particular wetland type to the credits that are available on the Corps' ledger. And in essence, that ledger is created by when we submit our plan to the Corps of Engineers, we'll say we're going to take these 1,000 acres, we're going to bring in beneficial dredge, and we're going to do it to these specifications. We're going to replant the appropriate vegetation. And, and if we do that, the Corps will say, that plan works. We think it's credible. We know what you're doing. They'll give us the credits for doing that. And when we receive those credits, um, we are then able to inform impacting parties in that watershed that um, we have credits that will be available, um, say, a year from now. Um, and we can, um, in some cases, pre-sell those credits before we even break ground. So we're able to solve the problem for the impacting party. And then once we build the wetland, the core, to make sure we've done it correctly, will only release some credits up front, then over typically a five to seven year period, they'll release the balance of the credits, say the other 75%. The reason they do that is they want to make sure that the wetland we built was sustainable and it's maintaining the endemic species that are supposed to be there, don't have invasive species, and we got the geotech right, and so you know that wetland is being um, restored and maintained. At the end of that credit payoff period, say seven years, um, we actually take the land and put it into a long-term easement. Um, in some cases, it's perpetual, greater than 60 years, so that when the wetland is um, been, quote-unquote, credit released and is mature, that wetland will stay as a wetland um, for 50 years or longer. And we do that by donating the land to Fish and Wildlife, or to a Audubon Society or Ducks Unlimited. So we have a situation where um, we're able to restore the wetland to the original pristine condition, and then the credits that we put on the Corps ledger, we can then sell to those impacting parties. And we're able to do that in a way that mitigates the exposure for the um, party that's impacting the wetland, because we take on all the liability. If our wetland 
system fails, it's our fault, and we have the responsibility to, to repair it, restore it, et cetera, and they buy our credit from the ledger. If they were to do it themselves, which in some cases they're still allowed, um, and it were to fail, say, a year into their restoration, the Corps can and has stopped the actual development that the impacting party is doing. They can stop, they can stop a $10 billion refinery in its tracks and say the wetland that you tried to restore has failed. Stop, cease work on your refinery until that wetland is fixed. That's a career limited experience for that project manager. They didn't do that right for that particular party. Yeah. So, but we, we, we take all that liability onto ourselves, which is a big deal when you're building a LNG pan or LNG plant or a refinery or a pipeline because that's not their core competency. Um, and and they just rather, and we're a small percentage of their capex. We're maybe 2% um, is the cost of these, these, these offset permits that, uh, that, that, we, that we create and the credits that, that we generate. Okay. So it's really diminishing, but it's a huge risk. Right. For the other parties. Right. So, so I mean, that's that's a great overview of what's going on here. Can I, if I can break it down, just so you, so I'm I'm, I'm making sure I understand this right. So, there's the federal government, uh, usually through the the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, and then there's a developer that needs its 404 permit, and in order to, um, in order to satisfy the requirements of the Clean Water Act Section 404, they need to uh, either self mitigate or buy the credits. From you guys, or from from an entity like you, like uh, ESP. Correct. Okay, so uh, I got a couple questions. Uh, you you had indic- indicated uh, that you know there's there's the um, the the core will release a certain amount of permits upon completion, and then there's this five to seven year period in which the the remainder of the credits are going to be issued. Uh, so if Let's just say there's an instance where the, the the remediation or the mitigation does not go as anticipated, and they they the Army Corps refused to issue the credits to uh, a wetlands mitigation bank. Right. What is 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 that divorced from the project then? Okay. Typically, they don't fail because it's pretty fundamental geotech science, and we've done it before. Matter of fact, there's probably less than a 1% failure rate for mitigation banks that have been built by professional wetland um, constructors, if you will. There's about a 97% failure rate for those that have been performed by the permitting party, for obvious reasons. They don't know how to build a wetland. Um, and there's a fair amount of, you know, science and hydrology and biology and limnology and all the good ologies that go into doing it correctly. Um, but, you know, once you know how to do it, it's, it's not, it's, it's in some ways building an apartment building. If you know how to build an apartment building, it's structural steel, it's a foundation. The odds of that building falling down are pretty small um, once you build, build, build the apartment building. And in many ways, you know, we're able to sell maybe 25% of the occupancy of our building you know, equivalent to the wetland, before we even start construction. So from a cash flow perspective, as, a, as an investor, it, it, it works very well for us because, you know, in, in many cases we can, we can pre-sell and have capital in escrow to mitigate our capital needs um, 
as, as we construct the web. And what's different about what we do is there's probably over 1,800 small mitigation banks across the country. And typically these are mom and pops that have five, 10 acres of you know hydric soil that's not really buildable or usable. If they were smart enough to say, hey, I can go get a permit, I can figure out how to restore this, this wetland and, and maintain it, and then I can get some credits for it and sell it to some of the local impacting parties, you know, a road that's coming through or whatever. And that's worked extremely well for, for many, many years. But there are very few large banks, and I'll define a large bank as over 1,000 acres. There's probably only, oh, maybe um, 500 to maybe 700 banks over 1,000 acres. Um, and, and if you're a large impacting entity, say an LNG plant or refinery or a big pipeline or a large road complex being built, it's difficult to go find the credits of the type that you want in this, these small amounts from these small little mitigation banks. What we do is try to solve that larger problem by um, creating a large bank, which you think about it, just, just the economics of scale, if you restore a thousand acre wetland, it's much more sustainable and and, and, and balanced, if you will, than, than a small five-acre piece of property. Um, so it's actually better for the environment, better for the ecology, the flora and the fauna, the ducks, et cetera, if you've got a, a larger tract. And, and from, from our perspective, you know, on a per-acre basis, it's much cheaper per acre to restore 1,000 acres as it is 10 acres for obvious reasons. Right, so, right. So we're, trying to fill that, we're trying to fill that larger need. Um, and with that, you know, requires capital. And we've recently raised um, an initial um, equity capital round of $250 million to execute that strategy so that we can buy land and then, you know, restore it to, um, to its original wetland um, condition. And, and the most expensive part, typically, in restoring a wetland is building a new wetland in the proximity where you can obtain beneficial dredge <coughs> and, and navigable waterways. Because the Corps of Engineers is required by law to dredge those um, inland waterways so that we can run commerce through it. And one of the big drivers here is that you know, we, have, we have these large Panamax ships now coming through the new expanded Panama Canal, and they draft probably another four or five feet than the conventional older ships and therefore, you got to dredge deeper and dredge more often. And particularly after a large hurricane like we've had in the last few years, as you can imagine, post-hurricane, you get lots of sediment flowing into these waterways, and you have to dredge more frequently and dredge more volume. Got it. So we're actually of a benefit to the Corps because if we'll try to find a wetland, say, within a few miles of that navigable waterway, and they'll dredge up to the surface, and then we'll pump through these large pipes, with big, you know, pumping systems to our destination, and that dredge just flows out into our wetlands and fills up to a defined level, and we figure out the sedimentation rate and how it settles so that we get the level right over time, and then we replant it, and then you have a wetland. How long does that process take? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jen. I don't know worries. Um, the permitting process takes about <clears throat> almost a year. And by, by, by definition, it should take about 230 days. But typically, it takes longer. There is bureaucracy. And the other piece of this puzzle is 
albeit the Corps of Engineers at the head of this table issuing this permit, there's other agencies that participate in the process. And it's called the Interagency Review Team, which can be the Fish and Wildlife, it can be the Department of Interior, it can be EPA, it can be state regulators, local folks. So it looks like, you know, a very complicated regulatory process one goes through. It is. But the Corps is at the head of the table and basically commands the process. And what's interesting now um, in the Trump administration is that um, rather than um, change the law, which obviously the president can't, or even roll back um, the regulation, is how do we accelerate or facilitate the issuance of these permits <clears throat> so that the Corps of Engineers will actually execute its regulatory um, program under the schedule it was um, set up to do. So there's actually guidance from, you know, the White House and, and, and through the, the Army that, you know, the, the Corps commanders are to accelerate this review process. And if um, Fish and Wildlife wants to take, you know, a year to study some particular obtuse issue, um, they'll say, well, they'll, they'll review it. If it's legitimate, sure. But typically, we'll look at it and say, okay, you got comment in 60 days, and we'll deal with it and make a decision and move forward. But the old days where you could say, I'd like a year to think about it, Mr. Corps of Engineers, and they'd say, yeah, sure, what do we care? You know, we'll, we'll take five years. Those days are gone. Um, and so it's not as though anyone's trying to get around the rules of the reg. It's like make decisions and move forward. Because ultimately, when you even did delay, you know, it was um, – restored wetlands anyway it just was it took too long so you know that's that's a positive change and you know if the president wants to get his trillion dollar infrastructure spend many of those capex projects are going to require a 404 permit and they're not going to want to wait three years to get those things done they want to make sure they're resolved safely and appropriately and restore the wetlands and in some cases you, know, you look at situations where you're impacting, um, so you take out 100 acres. If you can't replace the same credit type, they'll say, well, you have to do 200 acres of a similar um, wetland um, ecosystem. So you actually create more wetlands. The other wild card here is people don't appreciate, and we can debate what's causing sea level rise, um, whether it's you know man-made or you know, there's millennial change or whatever, but uh, clearly it's occurring. We're losing about a football field an hour um, in Louisiana due to sea level rise. So if we don't maintain a no net loss and we lose our, our wetlands, you know, that is basically the you know nature sponge, the shock absorber to to the next hurricane. And if you don't have that shock absorber there, then that tidal surge is amplified even worse than it would be if you don't maintain those wetlands. So, yes, there is a, you know, ecological perspective of this, which is also, you know, protecting the, the infrastructure of the United States um, and, and, and industry, because if they don't protect that refinery with wetlands around it, that next hurricane is going to impact it more and actually cause more damage, and therefore insurance rates go up and jobs are lost. And, you know, so there's a lot of benefit rather than just doing well by doing good, as they say. Right, right. So uh, there's a couple things. Um, so you would you had mentioned that the 
it's got to be in the same watershed. Now, what's the scope of the watershed? Because you could say, well, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the Mississippi, I'm in the area of the Mississippi drains, you know, that's my watershed. Um, what, what's the kind of the rule of thumb for, for being in the same watershed? If I can turn back, you had mentioned the, the Trump administration and the streamlining effect that they're having on the permitting process. Um, we all know that tax reform is pushed through now. Do you have any insights on – because one, one of the beneficiaries uh, under tax reform, as I understand it, are is going to be real estate development. And so do you have any uh, insight or thoughts on how tax reform is going to impact this market? It's lost what it's called extenuosity, if you will. It's the meander. 
and, and, and the natural, um, you know, weaving back um, of, of that of that stream, which gives it its gives it its 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 ecological state. In some cases, these are now just channels of, of rock that are just useless. So we'll go in and find those impacted streams and actually restore the sedimentosity and put in the right riprack back and put the right plant life in back and get the velocities where they should have been and restore that stream to where it was 100 years ago. And at the same time, we'll obviously, if there's still livestock practice going on, we'll keep the livestock out of the stream, um, which not only maintains the um, ecological construct of the stream, but surprise, surprise, when the cattle or the, the pigs walk into the stream, they happen to you know, go to the bathroom at the same time. And that actually adds to eutrophication and you know all the issues we have with algal blooms, et cetera, because that's nature's fertilizer is you know the excrement from from, from cattle and and and, um, and swine. What, one of the other things so you, you you've been talking about macro drivers here. So we have uh, the economy in general. Uh, we also had the, uh, the the draft for kind of the new uh, shipping vessels. What are some of the other macro drivers that are uh, uh, pushing this market? Well, the fact that now we are fracking in the United States, and we can debate that, you know, good or, good or for bad, but it's here to stay. Um, and, and we have very inexpensive gas prices now globally because we have so much of it. The U.S. is going to be a major exporter of LNG and, and probably oil for – the next decade or longer, who knows? Um, and that requirement relative to you know pipelines and terminals and and all the the needs we have to export that to the rest of the world is a huge major capex. And the other real driver is this is part of what Murray and I did when we were at Natural Gas Partners is our whole what was called global adaptation partner strategy was driven because we're going from 7 billion people on the planet to 9 billion people, and most of those folks are in emerging market countries, and they're shifting from a cereal diet to a protein diet. Um, and therefore, we in North America and South America will be shipping vast amounts of, of, of ag products, cereal, corn, um, even, even protein um, across the ocean, and the investment we have to have in and, and the nation's ports is is in the trillions, and and that is going to be, I think, a decade, multi-decade macro driver going forward because we're not going to stop population growth, and you know North America and South America are just machines of, of agriculture. It's very interesting. So um, my last question is concerning uh, what you do with the wetlands when. Uh, the the credit period has uh, expired. You said you you'd give them to either Fish and Wildlife or uh, the Audubon Society was one. So are these in the form of are you are you um, disposing of these via con- like a conservation easement or is it just just an outright fee transfer of title? I and mean, what are we? It, 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 it's a conservation easement in many cases. It can be a transfer of title um, to you know a third party like. Um, Ducks Unlimited, um, or even at the onset, we, need, we don't need, quote-unquote, fee simple title for the land that we're going to restore the wetlands and streams on. We need a, a, a long-term um, easement on that property, meaning that 
all that could be done on that property once the easement is in place is fishing and hunting, and in some cases, extraction of underground minerals without impacting the surface. You can actually horizontally drill underneath an area, which in some cases, the large oil companies own, so they can restore the wetland and still extract hydrocarbons under the appropriate distance. But other than that, you can't do any kind of development of housing or light industrial, heavy industrial refinery. It's going to have the easement on it in most cases longer than 50 years, which is in essence perpetuity, which is why when we look for opportunities in these various watersheds, be it Louisiana or Texas or even Alaska, we actually align ourselves with major NGOs like Ducks Unlimited or local Bay Foundations, et cetera, that are nonprofits because we align with their mission, which is to restore and maintain wetlands and habitat for very long term, more than 50 years. So they become a partner in our process rather than in some cases for many commercial developments, they can be someone that will slow those processes down because at the end of the day, we are really doing well by doing good. The other macro driver I should mention too is that as we all remember, we had the Deepwater Horizon spill by BP, and there was a settlement a few years back that basically said that BP will expend $17 to $18 billion over the next 15 years, and that money must be spent to restore impacted wetlands and areas that were affected by Deepwater Horizon. In Louisiana alone, $8 billion of that settlement must go to Louisiana and must be used to restore impacted wetlands. That's a very significant economic driver. It's coming from a AAA credit, BP. It's mandated by the federal courts. That's not going away, and it must be used in Louisiana, and it must be used to restore wetlands. So that's a very good source of capital that you could look at a credit wraparound or look at long-term significant restoration of wetlands. So we're actually looking, and the state of Louisiana recently passed legislation that says, in essence, pay for performance. If you, the private sector, will put out an RFP, the state would, and say we'd like you to build 1,000 acres of wetlands somewhere along the Louisiana coast, and if you build it to these specs, we need marsh, we need it in this type, this area, this quality, et cetera, write the performance specs, and then we, the private sector, will then deliver that to you, and you don't have to pay us until we deliver those credits as specified and allocated. So it takes the pressure off the budget, puts it to us, the private sector, and we only get paid if we perform. And that's how the private sector should work. Got it. It avoids this long, drawn-out, you know, they could design it, and then they got to go after bid again, then they got to do some more work, and what should be, you know, one year takes five years because the bureaucrats are just pushing the paper and doing this in a very serial way rather than letting the private sector just do its job 
And if they don't do their job, they don't get paid. That's how it should work. As you were talking, another uh, question popped into my mind. So, so when we've kind of talked about where this this activity is occurring, um, I mean, the, the states that have been brought up brought up have been Texas, Louisiana, Maryland. Um, are, are you seeing most of your work kind of uh, in in the southeast and along the eastern seaboard, or you know, what what are the most common geographies where these uh, wetland mit- mitigation banks are are, are acquiring property and, and working it's, it's, it's obviously where, wherever you have you know major major river outfalls and ports and the interface of of, of, of water and terra firma right and and usually of size that's that's the Gulf of Mexico it's the eastern seaboard it can be Charleston it could be the Chesapeake Bay um, it can be in parts of um, the Northwest um, we actually avoid California because we think it's kind of a different country. <laughs> it takes too long and lower lower hanging fruit for us to, to chase than to, to try to manage California. We're actually looking at opportunities in Alaska um, where um, the large mining operations and the large pipelines, you know, need to deal with Section 404 and have to get permits before they can begin exploration and or the construction of pipelines. So we're actually looking at restoring old mining properties that were quote unquote reclaimed, not restored. Difference in those definitions is everything because if you reclaim a mine, um, in some cases this is even before the you know, we had the Clean Water Act, you know, a lot of these impacted acres are just just gnarled up, destroyed you know, um, trout streams and areas that they mine gold or they mine platinum or wherever they mine and it's just an horrific, you know, uh, moonscape. We can go in and actually restore those areas and put the sinuosity back in those streams and put the trout or the, the salmon run back where it was. And in doing that, we get the credit and we put up on the Corps of Engineers ledger and gold miners and, and those building pipelines will buy those credits from us. And we've restored, you know, moonscape to this natural pristine condition and put the the salmon back where they belong, and um, and and the environment's better off for that than than, than not. But those, th- that's hard work, obviously, if you're up there in the Bering, you know, the Bering Sea, and trying to, you know, bring all the capital and do the restoration. But that's what we do. Yeah, yeah. Do you see much activity in the Great Lakes? Great Lakes region, I should say. No. You know, mitigation bankers have addressed. Um, but for us, I mean, there was so much low-hanging fruit, you know, in, in the Gulf and the Chesapeake and, you know, other parts of the country. You know, recognize this is not a huge business. It's probably a 7 to $8 billion a year business. And, you know, depends on your perspective, but that's not overly huge. Um, and there's probably only, you know, three or four large, well-capitalized bankers of size. So, you know, there's lots of things for all of us to do and share. And what we look for is, you know, we want our, our, our large competitors to do very well and to execute great projects. Um, you know, as you can imagine, if someone were to, you know, address this new RFP in Louisiana and, and be the first one to win it and say it's not us, it's somebody else, and they were to fail, we all lose. So we want good, competent, capable, well-financed, competitors that can 
deliver as, as well as we can. And that, that helps the business and brings credibility to all of us. Very good. Very well said. Well, Judd, I really want to thank you. You've, you've been awesome. I've, I've learned a tremendous amount about, uh, about the wetlands mitigation banking system and how it all works today. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Oh, 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 you bet. You, you bet. Judd, I, I completely spaced my last question, which uh, I typically will say, look, for those who want to find out more about you and EPS, how do they go about finding that information? And my email is jug.hill at eco service partners with an s.com. Well, thank you very much, Judd. Again, very informative. Really appreciated your time today and uh, wish you the best. Thanks so much. Thank you. You bet. All right, you bet. Bye, Judd. Well, I hope you all enjoyed uh, that interview with Judd Hill of Ecological Service Partners. I thought it was it was fascinating. I, I really didn't know what to expect coming into this uh, interview, but I was I was pleasantly surprised by uh, Judd and his, his the depth of his knowledge and uh, you know kind of his his kind of macro take on how wetlands impacts the economy and things of that nature. You know, especially the macro drivers. I mean, um, uh, you know, ta- he talked about the 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 draft of the new bigger transport ships uh, that go through the Panama Canal and how that impacts wetlands. So I think there's just a lot of really interesting things uh, that that he was explaining and, you know, the need for port infrastructure funding and, and things of that nature. So uh, I thought that was, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So uh, again, Judd, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciated it. And I would love to hear what you thought about this podcast. You can find the show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, zero. You know, let me know what you thought by leaving a comment. You can also, if you don't want to put it out there for the world to see, you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me with the hashtag uh, watervalues. You can, uh, my, my Twitter handle, you can tweet at me. My Twitter handle is at DTM1993. So please just let me know what you thought. Uh, And as I said at the top of the show, please, uh, if you've been enjoying it, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, whatever, whatever platform you're listening on. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me.
Thank you for tuning in to The Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.